This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore. I'm one of your hosts, and I am here, as always, with my co-host, Jughead Beethoven. Jughead, how are you doing today? <laughs> what on earth? Oh, I can- <laughs> I'm good. That's funny. I... Robert, I'm so spent on this episode. We so normally when we record an episode, it's at least a week before we do the intro, and mm-hmm. like it's been four minutes since we did the episode, and I, my soul is like laid out before it the is, Lord. It oh is my, very Lord. good. I can't wait for people to hear this. Like, let's just cut it. Okay, here's the episode. I mean, it's <laughs> K Warren. Y'all aren't ready for K Warren. She. I told Robert before we started because I'm a little more familiar with her story and kind of all of the things that she talks about than Robert. And so I was like, dude, like, just get ready. She's so real. She's so disarming. But like she took it up a notch. She's this y'all. Y'all aren't ready. You're just not ready. So buckle up, buckle up where if you're not in the car, go get in the car and buckle up. (laughs) Just sit in the car and listen, sit in the car, buckle up. She gives me hope. She gives me hope for the church if America's pastor, right, America's pastor's wife, um, if if she can speak so candidly about her own journey, um, gosh, the things she's been through personally and then losing a child to suicide, and she can be so raw and honest about her grief and finding God in the middle of – a really dark hell. Um, this gives me a whole lot of hope. Yeah, no, it's so good. And I was telling you before, while we're on things that give us hope, on the drive up here, right before we recorded this episode, I was on the phone with a pastor that I've met like once, and he got my contact info from someone and reached out to me because he's preaching this Sunday is when we when this releases, I guess. So today is Suicide Prevention Sunday. Yes. And he is preaching to the whole church, all the services on mental health and on suicide. And he was wanting, you know, my thoughts on where he was going to go and things like that. And I, every time I get some kind of message like that, I think that's cool. And then I have the conversation. I leave the conversation thinking, this is awesome. Like if, if that could happen all over the place, that type of thing, man, where would we be? But I, I mean, it's same here where Kay Warren is just talking openly and honestly about these things. She said she's preaching at her at Saddleback today when this episode releases as well. So I think some really, really powerful stuff. It's so cool. Uh, yeah, P.S. We're releasing this on Sunday. We normally release on Mondays, but it's World Suicide Prevention Day. And uh, y'all, we just talked with Kay Warren. So, uh, yeah, it's the perfect time to release this episode. Um when you finish listening to this, I'm confident you're going to want to share it. So share it. Share this story. If you know someone who has lost a loved one to suicide, uh, you know someone who is in the midst of their own terrible, horrible grief, share this episode and give them some hope. Um, this Wow. You know this goes down as one of my favorites ever. Oh, my word. So good. Well, we can talk again later in the week, but I think we should just go for it. Yeah, let's do it. Here it is. Kay Warren. All right, today we are so, so excited to be joined by uh, Kay Warren, who Steve will give a little bio of. Steve, how are you doing today? Hey, buddy, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited for this episode. Why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest today? Well, you know, it feels silly introducing somebody like Kay Warren, who, uh, unless you have lived under a rock, uh, you haven't heard of. But um, Kay is the co-founder of Saddleback Church. 
She is Pastor Rick Warren's wife. She's an international speaker, a best-selling author herself, and a Bible teacher who has a passion for inspiring and motivating others to make a difference with their lives. She is best known for more than 10 years as a tireless advocate for those living with mental illness, HIV and AIDS, and the orphaned and vulnerable children left behind. As an advocate, Kay Warren has traveled to 19 countries calling the faith community as well as the public and private sectors to respond with prevention, care, treatment, and support. Kay is also a board member of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. And when her youngest son, Matthew, took his life in April of 2013, her life was dramatically altered by the catastrophic loss. As she and her family continue to grieve the loss of Matthew, she is determined to be a voice for those living with mental illness. Her message to the faith community is to eliminate stigma, shame, and fear, and to create warm and accepting places of refuge for those who suffer. Miss Kay's bio goes on for days, but I think the most important parts of this is, is this right here. She's a mom, a Grammy of five. She's a pastor's wife, a speaker, an author, and an advocate. If you want to follow Kay Warren, you can do that by going to kaywarren.com. You can follow her on Twitter at kaywarren and the number one. Uh, you can also learn more about the church by going to saddleback.com and their mental health initiative by checking out hopeformentalhealth.com. All of this will be in the show notes. Kay Warren, thank you so much for being here. Good morning to you. Good morning. It's so good to be with you guys. I've been looking forward to this. Well, we have too. We have had this uh, scheduled out for quite a while, so yeah. we are just thankful to have you on. Thanks. Yeah, so we have lots of questions, obviously, um, but first we want to just give you space to um, to share your story. Maybe there are people who, for some reason, aren't familiar with you. Would you take a few minutes and, and tell us your story, take us down your journey? Like from the day of my birth onward? Or? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right. What, what do you, you remember about that day? <laughs> I remember a very bright light. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, I, I was born in uh, San Diego, California. My dad was a pastor of um, small churches, small Baptist churches, um, back in the days when it was considered, quote, pioneer work. Um and uh, so I grew up in a very, very conservative uh, church. Um, I'm 63. So, you know, I was just a child when some very um, memorable times happened in our nation, when um, there was the Cold War, when President Kennedy was assassinated, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, Robert Kennedy. So, so civil rights movement, um, the hippie movement, free love. I mean, the 70s with um, all the changes that happened with there in when women's rights. And, you know, so I feel like my life has spanned um, a huge chunk of the change that has happened um, in, in American life and also in church life. Um, you know, the church is a different place than it was then when I grew up. But, um, you know, along the way, I was I was molested as a very young child by the son of our church janitor. Um, to this day, my, you know, my parents still can't figure out how I was ever separated from them at church at such a young age long enough for for this to have happened. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, that, that's one of those unanswerable things. But it did happen, really shifted who I was because um, not only was the event itself traumatic, um, but my particular family <laughs> Um, well, let's just say my sex education came about with the little golden book of knowledge. Uh, that is a, a true set of books that people used to get with their Encyclopedia Britannica. And um, I have clear memories of my parents sitting me down when I was probably nine or 10, opening the golden book of knowledge. And there was some awkward conversation that involved birds and flowers, drawings of flowers, <laughs> and bees pollinating the flowers. And somehow oh. I was supposed to extrapolate from that um, what it what there was about sexuality and sex. Um, I just remember being really grateful when they were finished talking about it and I could <laughs> and I could go back outside and, and skate. 
Um, But along, that's go ahead. That's amazing. I've heard the phrase "the birds and the bees." You know, you get to talk about the birds and the bees. I never knew that that was an actual book that that phrase probably came from. That somebody had actually written a set of books (laughs) that used those images. That's amazing. It was it was an entire methodology. (laughs) It was a it was a way of teaching. And um, so I not only had I been molested, but I grew up in a family in which sex was an awkward and um, embarrassing topic. And so we didn't really talk about it. So when as a young um, teenager, really young, you know, 13, 14, and and I was changing and um, growing myself and the normal developmental stages of sexuality, I didn't feel comfortable talking about it to my parents, but I stumbled on um, uh, pornography in the form of a magazine at a home where I babysat. And I was a good Christian girl and I loved Jesus with all my heart. And I knew that good Christian girls did not look at such things as that. But I had a lot of um, questions in my mind. I had a lot of conflicted feelings and emotions that I didn't know what to do with. And the natural pull toward um, curiosity um, pulled me toward that magazine. And I looked at it and was both full of shame and fascination at the same time. And I swore that I would never, ever, 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 ever look at anything like that again. And I didn't until the next time I babysat. And these ridiculous people had it out on their coffee table. I, I mean, it was like, mm. oh, here's wow. here's Life magazine and here's Newsweek magazine. And oh, by the way, here's, you know, um, a magazine, a pornographic magazine. And um, so they made it pretty easy. Um, and so before long, I found myself um, fascinated, but repelled at the same time. And it created such a such a conflict within me as as somebody who really did love Jesus. By that time, I surrendered my life, I was going to be a missionary to Japan. And you know, so I've got a I've got a pathway set out for myself. And it didn't include reading, you know, um, pornography. Um, so that kind of continued throughout um, young adulthood. It, it, it was still present when Rick and I met at college. But I have to, I really do want to clarify. Am, am I taking too long, by the way? No, not okay. at all. Okay, okay. Am I giving you like <laughs> what I, I wore on Thursday, March 8th? Okay, no. okay, okay. All right. So, so um, now I lost my train of thought. You met- oh, yeah. Well, I want to just backtrack a little bit because today, if we talk about being addicted to pornography or, you know, hooked on pornography or, or whatever, most of us conjure up something very different than what I was exposed to. Because remember, this is like mm, 55 years ago when when this first happened. So pornography was not easily accessible. It wasn't on my phone. You know, it wasn't on the Internet. I didn't have a computer I didn't have access to um, to movies, to videos. I, I mean, it was a very limited um, exposure that that I could ever even come across. When I, I had to stumble on it, I couldn't access it on my own. So it was limited, and it was um, it was uh, rare. But but I fought it on the inside, and um, and so most of my fight was internal rather than what I actually saw or participated in. But nevertheless, it was traumatic for me um, because of all the stuff that it stirred up inside of me. And so when Rick and I got married, I at that point, I didn't even remember that I had been molested. I was sitting in um, a class one day at college, and I, this is just the way memories work sometimes. Something that was said in that class, I don't even know what it was, it it triggered something in my brain. And in a flash, I had crystal clear memories of what had happened to me. And it about undid me in that class, because it was the first conscious memory that I'd had in probably a decade. And I didn't know what to do with it. Certainly, I wasn't going to tell anybody, I wasn't telling anybody about my fascination with pornography. And I certainly wasn't telling anybody that I had been molested, because those were just not things that um, you know, we talked about. So when Rick and I met and um, and we got engaged, I told him 
probably, you know, a short time before we got married that I had been molested, but I didn't really have any emotions around it. And at the time, I, I mean, we were young, we were 19. He didn't in a very, very strict Christian college. So we came out of that same, you know, background and milieu. And so we were both approaching it from the same place of, hmm, interesting, put that on the back burner. Don't talk about that. So we had no idea how that was going to affect us. But when we got married, um, as as couples who had saved ourselves for sex, um, because that's what I mean, I still believe in that. I don't I don't discount that. But I'm just saying for us that it, it just was one more factor in the oh, my goodness, we had such an elevated view of, of how sex was going to be because, you know, we we had saved ourselves for for marriage and it was going to be wonderful. And when it was terrible and didn't work and, and we were so ashamed that that it didn't work and and we didn't understand how me being molested had had shaped, um, you know, sexuality for me, we just muddled along in such a hard place for so long. Um, okay. So, so there's so I much. There. To, uh, I go there ahead and jump in. So much there. I, so this is my story. <laughs> so uh, Steve, everybody knows uh, from listening to the show and, and all of my blogging and my book, I was molested as a preschooler, almost four years old. Uh, very ultra conservative, fundamental Christian family. We didn't talk about it. First flashback, I was a senior in high school on a field trip with other leaders from our county. And I mean, I mean you're telling this story. I'm going, oh my gosh, me too. Oh my gosh, me too. Yep. Oh my gosh, me too. You know, the porn thing, 20 yep. year addiction. Um, wow. I, but, but for, for a lady to share this for, an internationally known public figure for the wife of one of the most well-known pastors in the world to share all of this. This is a big deal. And I know it's not your first time to share it, but it's, it's, I just can't say thank you enough. I think, you know, God, there's, there's enough of a taboo around addiction um, for men, but my goodness, when a, a woman, a mother, a grandmother, uh, you know, says, hey, this was my experience too, even if our experiences had, you know, differences in the details. Um, these are the kind of conversations to me that matter. And it's the kind of conversations millennials at least are craving in the church. And we don't hear people talking about them enough. I don't know what the stats are now, but I know about five years ago, 66% of church going men were addicted to pornography. You go and talk to a pastor and say, "Hey, let's let's have a porn Sunday. Let's talk about this stuff." And they say, "Oh, what well, doesn't happen in my church? You know, it's not a problem here." <laughs> so, yeah. I, all of that to say, "Wow, thank you so much for sharing that with us." Well, yeah, and you know, there are parts of my story I had so I'd shared the part about being molested. I've been sharing that part of my story for a really long time. Um, when I was forty. Uh, Rick and I, he, you know, I mean, we, gosh, there's so much to say. There's so much in our marriage that has made it difficult um, because we are so different. We are radically, we, we say we have a God arranged marriage because we would not have picked each other. Um, it was one of those, God told me to marry you kind of things. And we were both obedient and married. Um, but we have had to work like crazy to build a strong marriage. And I mean, it, it's, it's been rough um, because we are so different. We're both, I guess if I get really honest, we're both much more selfish and self-absorbed than either of us wants to admit because sometimes, I mean, my brother was visiting uh, last weekend and Rick and I got into one of those stupid arguments, stupid arguments over, um, He's, you know, he's telling my brother, so when you go on this road, you do this and you this and you this. And I'm like, no, what you do is this. And so like five minutes later, as we're still, you know, kind of arguing over that conversation, he's saying, no, I didn't say that. And I go, yes, you did. And he's going, no, I didn't. And I go, yes, you did. And my brother is sitting there looking, you know, one of his eyebrows is raised and he's just looking at us like, really, you guys? And, and we finally just had to stop and just say, okay, we're, 
I know what I said. You know what you said. It's never going to, we're never going to agree that this is the way the conversation went. So we're going to have to just agree to disagree on this and walk away. And later my brother was like, he, my brother's single. And he's like, so that's what marriage is like, huh? <laughs> and I'm oh, like, yeah. and I'm like, uh, yeah, sometimes it really is that stupid. Um, <laughs> but, but when I take a step back out of the emotion of that moment, what was it that was driving both of us to keep going over something that didn't matter? I mean, it was like a mosquito on the pond scum of life. It was nothing. And why did we invest so much emotional energy in that moment to figure out which of us was right? It didn't matter. It was irrelevant. And, and so when I, when I really am gut level honest, I know that some of the difficulties that we've had through the years have just been because we're both pig-headed, stubborn as mule people. And that will never get you to peace. It will never get you to harmony. It will never get you to oneness. It will never get you to unity in marriage or in friendships or in a church or in a world. It's, it's destructive. So when I look at some of the trouble we've had, yes, I was molested. There was sexual brokenness. There was um, what he brought into the marriage of how he dealt with conflict, which was to run as fast as he could away from it. Um, my way to deal with conflict of what I learned in my home was, um, you know, Mount St. Helens had nothing on, on me. I, I'm a, you know, I, I can be an exploder and I'm intense. He would run, I would explode. Um, we're both self-centered. We're self-absorbed. We, uh, we're sinners. So when we hit about 40 and we're the same age and we had had all these difficulties at the same time, we were crazy about each other. Um, and he sat down one day in our big armchair in, in our bedroom and said, Kay, I'm going to go to counseling for the brokenness in, in our um, physical relationship, whether you go or not. Because up to that point, I had steadfastly refused. We'd gone for other issues, but not for that. And the reason was because, honestly, and maybe, Steve, you can probably highly identify with this. For me, it was like, if I go there, if I really admit how, if I say it out loud, how broken I am, I might lose my mind. Oh, I, yeah. might, I might actually be so devastated by that admission that I could go crazy and never recover again. I uh, didn't deal with it until I was 29 years old after my suicide attempt. This month is five years for me. And we didn't deal with the brokenness in our marriage. I didn't deal with – I'd never been to counseling in my life until I was 29 years old. We'd already been married five years, and marriage was jacked up and it huh. took me nearly dying literally yeah. dying for us to say hey and, and you know Lindsay my wife being the tangible grace of God and saying I know who you are at your core and I believe in you and I'm standing by you I mean when somebody does that and says but I, I'm doing all of this and you're gonna get up and fight and you're gonna do the hard work oh man oh, okay yeah. well now I can yeah so it was a long process, um, as you know, anybody would tell you. And, and I could up to begin, the most honest thing I could say is there are parts of, of me that will never be completely 100% healed until I'm in heaven. And um, as I was reading in Isaiah yesterday, Jesus, God says, there will be no hurt in Mount Zion. And I wept when I read that because just, just to hear it said, like, there, there will be no hurt. In Mount Zion. And I thought, yeah, there are parts of who I am. God has done miraculous work in my life. I've worked hard. I've applied all sorts of principles and, and, and scriptural principles and psychological principles and relationship principles. And I've worked hard to, to become who I am today and who I am as a wife and a mother and a grandmother and all that. But I'm, I also know that total and complete restoration isn't going to happen completely until until um, I'm in heaven, and and I hold on to that. But you know, gosh, there's so much. But I think what I'm trying to say is, when you say we don't hear these kind of stories, we we don't we don't know what to do. Most of us with 
our brokenness. We don't know what to do with the ugly side of life. We don't know what to do with grief. We don't know what to do with mental illness. We don't know what to do when things don't fit neatly in a box. We just are so, we just love to try to put things in boxes and tie them up with bows and go there. It's lovely now. And, um, and sometimes it happens that way, but Equally as many times, if not much, life doesn't fit neatly into a little box with a cute little bow. It's, it is, um, it's why the why people of old talked about the, their longings for heaven and and the and that life here was hard. And um, so I feel like if if Rick and I can can talk about those things, talk about the realness in our marriage, the realness of mental illness, the realness of of sexual brokenness, the realness of um, grief, then people people are helped so much more by that than us giving 10 leadership principles of how we did everything right. Um, it's beautiful and so true. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you this. When things don't fit in the box, when you can't tie it up with a bow, most people listen to this show get that. But yet the phrase choose joy is in your bio, and it's the title of one of your books. And if I'm being 100% honest, it's a phrase that I have railed against for about <laughs> five years Yeah. because in the early days of my own just coming out as a pastor dealing with depression and anxiety, the phrase just choose joy. It's annoying, isn't it? Oh my gosh. To say the least. <laughs> so what does it mean to you then in that context? Well, I do want to back up and say, I've read your book, Steve, and I've read it twice. And um, I've, I've cried my way through it both times. It makes me cry um, just now. I had no idea you've read my book. Now you're going to make me cry. <laughs> um, there was so much in your story that I could resonate with both from my own life um, and that similarity of those early childhood and and the how beauty I just listen. I know I'm going all over the place and I'm sorry, um, but I just listened to a podcast this week by Dan Allender from the Allender Center. And um, one of them was on um, beauty out from our scars. And he talks about how most of us and especially those of us who experienced any sexual abuse have had experiences where beauty was taken from us. And, um, and when I was reading, um, your book again, I was struck even by that phrase of, of, as I could identify of beauty was taken from us and, and that the rest of our lives is, is finding beauty from restoring the beauty from the scars of, of what was done to us. And, um, but it wasn't just that, but it was also because of my passionate love for my son, Matthew, and the the days and the years and the decades that I walked intimately with him through major depression and suicidal ideation and multiple suicide attempts and finally um, where he took his life. And so I wept my way through your book, um, not only for the pain that um, and the suffering that you've endured and that millions of others have endured, but also for the fact that you're here and that I get to talk to you today, Steve is um it it um it touches me and i'm so grateful for you and i'm grateful for lindsay and the way that she has um loved you and helped you fight a fight that is harder than anybody will ever know and i just want to honor you and tell you that um while I don't know what it's like to live with major depression, I love someone who did, and um, I uh, I just can't tell you how grateful I am that you continue to fight your way through each day. Thank you so much. And I love and, you as a friend. Oh, I love you right back, and now Robert's going to handle the rest of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I was going to say... Um, Oh my goodness. I don't know. I guess just as two guys who both have kind of been on that side of things of being suicidal and wanting to die to hear, I don't know, that wasn't even directed at me. That was directed at Steve, but still. Well, it's because so, I don't know like, your story. No, no, Robert. no. I know. I, I didn't mean it like that, but still, I just mean just to hear kind of that encouragement and that like, 
thankfulness for for people who are, who are willing to tell their stories, such as Steve, which you know I'll admit I've only read his book one time, not twice. So uh, bad friend. <laughs> it's okay, Robert. It's all right. <laughs> Kay Warren's read it twice. That's really all that. <laughs> I even I even highlight. <laughs> oh, that just Ooh, there you, gosh, go. you have no idea what that means to me. Oh my goodness. So. Let me ask kind of some follow-ups there. You talked about your son and we put out, you know, that we were talking to you and asked some listeners what they wanted to to hear about. And one of the questions was how, what was it like for you to grieve that loss being in such a public, I think the listener said in the fishbowl of such a, a large and influential ministry, how do you kind of hold that tension of, going through something so deeply personal, but being in a spot where so many people can can see it happen? We didn't really have much of an option um, about whether we were going to grieve privately or publicly because uh, the story made uh, national news. And within a few hours of Matthew's death, um, you know, CNN and Fox and other news had scrolling banners, you know, at the bottom of their... Yeah. Um, other newscasts and some people covered it and it made it, you know, it made news magazines. It, it, it just, we didn't have an option as to whether it was going to be um, known. And so, um, and people reported, you know, how he died and um, they reported, uh, you know, some of the circumstances. And so I guess in God's mercy for us, we've lived in the public eye for so long we were already, um, you know, a known quantity, if you will, in um, in the faith community, particularly in the United States and places in the world, and and so we just knew from the very beginning that we were gonna we were going to. Sorry, the word I started to use sounded cold, so I'll explain it. That we were gonna leverage that, that that we were not gonna hide, that we had nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah. that our son had a mental illness. He was ill. He struggled. He fought courageously. He fought bravely. He did everything he could to to live and to deal with an illness that felt like a monster that was swallowing him whole. Yeah. And there was no shame in that. And there was no shame. Um, we were proud that he was our son and um, proud of um, who he was. and. Uh, even though Matthew, in his the depths of his illness, could be mean and cruel and scary, uh, but it wasn't him. It was the illness talking, and um, we knew that. And so we decided that we were going to, uh, we weren't going to hide that, and we weren't going to pretend that mental illness didn't touch our family, and it did. And we were not going to whisper suicide. We were going to shout it, and we weren't afraid of it. It had already uh, mental illness took our son and we weren't going to let it win by making us stay in bed with the covers over our head. We were going to um, grieve and hopefully show the world and the faith community how to grieve, um, how to, how to honor God with our lives and trust him with stuff that we couldn't even begin to understand and yet not, um, we weren't going to let Matthew's death separate us from our faith in God, and we weren't going to let it um, put us in hiding, and we weren't going to let it make us put our heads bowed in shame. We were going to say, uh, this happens. Mental illness is real, and it's common, and it happens to so many people. Um, probably every single one of us knows and loves somebody with a mental illness or is living with a mental illness ourselves. We were going to showcase that. We were going to talk about it. We were going to educate. We were going to inspire. Um, there's a deep, there's a deep longing, at least for us as parents. I, I, I feel like you, you experienced some of this, Stephen. Robert, I don't know your story, and I apologize. Or no, I would use. Not, you don't have to apologize at all. I would use both of you in some of these um, sentences, but um, there's a desire, at least in us, to redeem the pain, to yeah. redeem where beauty has been stolen from us. Absolutely. Beauty was stolen from Matthew. Beauty was stolen from our lives. And we are determined to um, find the beauty from the terrible ashes of his death, not only for ourselves, 
but for um, the church, for people living with mental illness, people struggling with suicidal thoughts. Um, yeah, so for us, it was both, we were thrust in it, thrust into it, but we also chose the way that we were going to respond. And so the choose joy part, Steve, that annoying, yeah. stupid little phrase. Sure. Um, <laughs> I, I, had to, I had to do it because I've lived with depression my whole life. Um, not, I always compare my depression, my depression and Matthew's depression. His was major depressive disorder. And so mine was more like a little pesky sinus headache. His was a pounding migraine every day of his life. So my depression next to his depression pales, but I know enough about depression, have lived enough with depression to feel like, um, okay, so I must have been standing behind the door when they were handing out joy because mm. I did not yeah. get it. I didn't understand it. I'm an Eeyore, um, you know, in the Winnie the Pooh school of personality. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm an Eeyore. And, and I couldn't, I would read the Bible and there was such, it felt like a discrepancy between what Paul and Jesus and James and Peter and Dave, I, I don't know, just felt like so many people in the Bible had joy. And I would look at my life and I couldn't see it in myself, but I kept looking around trying to find other people who I thought modeled that kind of mm, resilient faith that allowed them to not curse God and die every day at, or or grow cold and robotic in their faith. I just couldn't find any examples. I could find extroverts, but I just started believing that can't be all there is. Can't just, you know, <laughs> can't just be the extrovert to get this joy thing. I don't know. So it launched me on a study and um, I did a study on it probably, I don't know, like 15 years ago and I taught it. And then um, probably the year before Matthew died, when things were getting so bad, his mental illness, he was declining. And I felt like I was just hanging on by a fingernail. And I pulled out these notes in a drawer, you know, something I'd taught like, you know, a decade before. And I was stunned to realize that I was no different. I had researched this, I had taught this, and I still wasn't living it. Hmm. And I felt like if I didn't, if I didn't get it then, now, you know, when I was looking at it before Matthew died, I would never get it. And so I, this time I, I decided to really apply what I was learning and, um, and I can say it has changed my life so much so that on the day that Matthew died, I was wearing a necklace that said, choose joy. Wow. Um, and um, I had deliberately pulled that necklace out of my uh, jewelry drawer that morning. I was pretty sure Matthew had died. I was pretty sure he that we would find him dead that day, but you know those are details I don't really go into as to why I felt like I needed to wait. To ch and so when we ch when we were finally able to bring the police in um, later that day to um, get into his house, um, and Rick and I were standing in the, his driveway holding each other, waiting for confirmation. Um, I just kind of glanced down and saw that I had pulled off that necklace and I held it up to him. And he read it and um, we looked at each other and there was just this wordless knowing that we were going to have to choose joy to survive. Wow. And um, it doesn't mean happiness. It doesn't mean pleasure. It doesn't mean this sappy, happy, you know, slap a smile on it kind of thing. It, it means that I know there's a settled assurance in my heart that God is in control of all the details of my life. <laughs> and there is a quiet assurance that ultimately everything is going to be okay. And a determined choice to give my praise to God, no matter what. Now for me, that's a definition I can live with. Mm, that's gritty. I, it is. And so that day, there was an assurance that God was in control. Even in that day when it felt like my whole life had just ended, there was a confidence that even the ugliest, most painful things that happen 
will be made right in the end. And out of those two things, I could choose to give praise to God, not for what had happened, but for him, for his character, for who he is, that he's unshakable, that he doesn't change, his purposes don't waver, that I could love a God who couldn't be shaken, and I could trust him. That allows me to choose joy. Can we talk a little more about grief? Absolutely. <laughs> grief, for me, in, in the modern, maybe in the Western Christian context, is really weird. It's really wonky. And I wrote about my aunt dying by suicide. Um, she's been gone 20 years. And how nobody tells you that grief can last a lifetime. So... We choose joy. We do this gritty joy that you're talking about that I can I can live with. I can I can do that one, um, and I have done that one. I just didn't know it. So okay, yeah, I'll choose joy say, now, Miss Kay. I was gonna say you are doing. It. You are. Doing it. <laughs> but okay, so there's the days that we choose joy. But what I hear you saying is that sometimes you're choosing joy when the world is screaming, when grief is staring you in the face. Um, I don't know, on a birthday or you see some memento of Matthews from childhood. You know, I, I know there are things that trigger that grief and all of that. So what would you say to the mom, the spouse, the whoever who's been grieving a long time but still trying to do their part to be as faithful as they can be in their walk with God? What would you say to them? Catastrophic grief, and I don't think there's any grief that is more catastrophic than losing a child. I, I just, I mean, in grief, we talk about, you know, there's no, um, they, they say grief is grief and loss is loss. And I agree, and yet I don't completely, because I've grieved the loss of my father-in-law, whom I adored, my mother-in-law, whom I adored, my father, whom I adored. Rick's brother, whom I adored. Um, I've grieved friends and family. And I've grieved my child and my child's death by suicide. And each, it, it, it adds layers. I'll put it that way. To lose a child adds layers to grief. And to lose a child to suicide adds another layer because suicide is always accompanied with guilt and remorse. It's a complicated grief. There's so many unanswered questions. Um, there's so much, there's trauma because a person who dies by their own hand. Um, you know, if I've, I also have a really close friend um, whose child was murdered and in murder, you can be angry at the person who murdered your loved one. You know, you, you have, that's part of the process of, you have to find the place to forgive the person who murdered your loved one. And some people struggle for, you know, for a very long time to find that ability to forgive. In suicide, the person who murdered your loved one was your loved one. Yeah. And, um, and so it's complicated. It's just complicated. And I think what I try to tell, um, particularly people who are grieving the suicide of a loved one, is that it's a complicated grief. It has many layers. It changes you. Catastrophic grief changes you. I, I was one person on April 4th, 2013. I became a different person on April 5th. 2013 and the old Rick and Kay Warren are gone and and we're gone forever about I don't know 10 months after Matthew died I was in a parking lot of a you know been to the grocery store and a member um that I knew you know casually came drove through pulled stopped me rolled down her window and she said oh I'm just so glad to see you but I just want you to know we miss you on the stage when are you going to be back on the you know, when are you going to be back in the pulpit? When are you going to be sharing again? We just miss you. And I was so offended mm. and um, that she she was 
totally clueless. She was trying to tell me something kind, but, but basically she was, what I felt she was saying was move on. Would you come on? We want the old K back. We want you back up there. Come on, get, move on girl. We need you. And, and I said to her, you know, I appreciate what you're saying and tell me that you miss me, but you know what? It hasn't even been a year since Matthew died and I'm doing good to breathe, yeah. let alone stand on that stage. So if you want to pray for me, you can pray, not that I'll come back to the stage, but that I'll learn how to live again without my son. <sighs> and I wrote a face. I went home. I was so ticked. I went home and I wrote a Facebook post that basically just, I'd also that week gotten a, um, an email from another friend who actually said those words to me, who had said, I have a sense in my spirit that you are not moving on. Oh, gosh. And I put those two things together and I just wrote a tirade about, don't you dare tell me to move on. It hasn't even been a year and you are trying to, because you feel uncomfortable with my sadness and my grief and the way that grief has changed me. And because you are uncomfortable with it, you want me to go back to this person that I was so that you can feel comfortable again. And, and I'm telling you to back off. <laughs> um, and, and the responses that I got on, on Facebook, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, it got maybe a million hits. I don't, can't remember all that. And, and you know, thousands of comments. Oh, yeah. and, and the anecdotal, so it's not a scientific survey. But the anecdotal story that I could tell you is that every single person who had lost someone very dear to them, and especially those who'd lost them in a catastrophic way or had lost a child, said, I'm not the same person. Some people said, I left church and I've never been able to go back. Some people have said, I feel as though my life ended the day that my loved one died. I mean, the stories of how grief changes us. they're hard to read, but they tell me that we don't do grief well and that we don't know what to do with it. And so I my think especially in the church, especially in the church, but even in American culture, you know, in American culture, we used to wear black. Everybody, you know, Christian, non-Christian people wore black armbands. You yeah. know, men wore black armbands or a band around their hat or women wore black dresses or you draped your windows in your house with black crepe. And I mean, you had like people gave you a year. They at least gave you a year before they expected you to, to, you know, dance the jig out in the street. They just, they gave you time. And um, so it's not just the church. It's just our culture. We've done mm-hmm. away with all those external markers of people in mourning. I I have a, a really good fr- good friend who are Jewish who lost um, their little boy to a degenerative disease. And when I was with him in... Um, um, in synagogue one morning because I I would go and just be with them in their in their grief and there's a part of the service every single Saturday where as part of the the liturgy as part of the ceremony people who are in mourning stand up and and there's a particular part of the readings that you do and nobody looks askance at the people standing nobody says what are you standing for what you're still grieving come on I mean it's a it People get to mourn and they get to mourn in community, which is where we should be able to mourn. They get to mourn in their in the presence of their faith and nobody nobody puts them down for it or criticizes them. And and in the church, we don't we don't get that. The funeral's over and you know, that's one of those put it in the box, tie it up with a bow, you know, move on. And that's just absolute and utter nonsense. And it's cruel. It's cruel to those who are grieving. Um, so that's part of, I think, what, what we're trying to do is open up those conversations, show people it's okay to grieve, it's okay to hurt for a very, very long time. And then you know what? I'm going to have tears in my eyes until I see Jesus and Matthew again. I'm going to live with tears in my eyes. I'm, I can smile. It's been four and a half years and I'm gradually, I'm gradually learning how to live my life again, how to be K, how to, how to do life, how to participate in life. And I can smile and I can laugh, but there are tears in my eyes and they're going to be there. And that's okay. It's good. Thank you so much.
I, there are so many other questions, but there there are so many questions that are that are practical and that are more um, <laughs> mental health based. I, oh, I would love to have you back. I don't know if we can schedule it. If you would be willing to come back and talk about your summit um, and hopes for the church moving forward on mental health, this this was such a personal conversation, and I don't want to taint it with all the other stuff. Yeah. So um, would course, you be willing would, to do absolutely, that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would oh. love to. Um, and I love to talk about children's mental health and how adverse um, childhood experiences, you know, affect children and um, how that, um, you know, can, can lead to mental. I mean, yes, there's a whole, there's a whole, I would love to dive into all of that. I was going to say, I think all the, uh, all the questions I had for you about the summit and things like that partway through, I was like, I'm not asking these, this conversation (laughs) is good. Yeah. I would love to come back. Yeah, I would be happy Wonderful. to. Well, Miss Kay, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to connect with Kay, you can find her at kwarren.com uh, on social media at kwarren1, or you can learn more about Saddleback at saddleback.com or check out their uh, mental health initiatives at hopeformentalhealth.com. That's the number four, hopeformentalhealth.com. If you want to connect with Steve, you can find him on social media at I am Steve Austin or at IamSteveAustin.com or .net. You can connect with me on social media at Robert Vor or find me at Robert-Vore.com. Ms. Kay, do you have any, any closing words for our listeners today? Um, you know, I would, I would say that all the things we've been talking about, um, we've talked about, I think these are things, I guess I just want to say there's always hope. I can't ever, I can't ever end a conversation without saying, I believe in hope. Hope can be dangerous. Hopes can be dashed. And when your hopes have been dashed as, as ours have, we believed Matthew was going to be healed here on earth and he wasn't. Um, and so we've had to rebuild our hope. We've had to learn how to live with mystery, but but I, I I don't regret the very audacious prayers that I prayed for God to heal Matthew. I went out on the faith limb so far out there believing God was going to heal Matthew, and I don't regret that. And I still encourage anybody who's listening, um, who is living with a mental illness, or you love somebody who has a mental illness, or you've got some other issue in your life that is um, taking you to that place of despair. Uh, pray those audacious prayers. Um, I, I still believe that that's what we're to do with, um, we're supposed to run to God with our hurts and our struggles. There's always hope. God um, still parts the waters. He does it in his own way. Sometimes he doesn't do it the way I would always ask or want, but I trust him. And um, I absolutely believe in hope. Yeah. So good. Kay Warren, you are incredible. Thank you for for telling us the truth. Thank you for not sugarcoating. Um, thank you for not giving us all these pious platitudes that we can't connect with. You have shared your heart. You have, <laughs> I feel like you've rendered your garments here with us today and it's just, it's just so powerful. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a privilege. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.